If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast. To be honest, we need more listener donations to be able to keep this show alive because, as you can see, we no longer do product advertisements, and we really want to keep it this way because we don't want to sell you things you don't need, and more importantly, we knew we needed to shed the incentive of appealing to corporate sponsors so that we can maintain our very critical lenses and continue to question a lot of mainstream ideas and big green narratives. And if every listener chipped in just $2 a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today to be a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support or at patreon.com slash greendreamer. One of the biggest impacts of this sort of push towards a dependence on cash economies is that it very much, in many ways, disempowers Indigenous Marin peoples who have traditionally, you know, engaged in subsistence activities and who are very much attuned to the seasonalities and the rhythms of their natural environment and who are now finding themselves very much caught in these kind of monopsonistic relations with corporate and state actors, which take away a lot of their freedoms and autonomies to make their own sorts of decisions about what their economic futures might be or might look like. Today, we're speaking with Sophie Chow, who is Discovery Early Career Research Award Fellow and lecturer at the Department of Anthropology, University of Sydney. Her research investigates the intersections of indigeneity, ecology, capitalism, health, and justice in the Pacific. Chow is author of In the Shadow of the Palms, More Than Human Becomings in West Papua, and co-editor of The Promise of Multi-Species Justice. I want to start by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you today from the unceded lands of the Gadigal people here in Australia, and I want to pay my respects to Gadigal elders, past, present and emergent, and also to Gadigal kin, both human, animal, vegetal and elemental. 
So my interest in the intersections of indigeneity, ecology, capitalism, health, and justice in the Pacific very much stemmed from my prior career in the human rights sector when I was conducting extensive investigations into human rights abuses in the Southeast Asian palm oil sector, with a particular focus on Indonesia, which is the world's top palm oil producer. It was in the course of those advocacy efforts and endeavors, often in coalition with indigenous communities, that I became aware of the indissociable connection between human and more than human lives and futures in uh, indigenous cosmologies. And that then became the focus of much of my subsequent research as an environmental anthropologist. The question of uh, sovereignty and self-determination have also been really central to this research agenda, again, inspired by my engaged work with indigenous human and land rights activists, but also through my interdisciplinary engagement with scholarship that is trying to push against this idea of human exceptionalism by instead trying to resituate humans through their many and diverse relationships to plants, to animals, to elements, to landscapes and to ecosystems. So it was really that sort of cross-pollination of different disciplinary perspectives combined with my fieldwork experience among various Pacific societies that brought me to center my research on these questions of more than human relations and more than human socialities. Mm. And I'm sure we will dive a lot deeper into all of this throughout our conversation as well. Your new book, Shadow of the Palms, More Than Human Becomings in West Papua, looks at multi-species entanglements of oil palm plantations in the region, showing how indigenous marined communities understand and navigate the social, political, and environmental demands of the oil palm plant. I think a lot of people who are attuned to environmental concerns are Aware of the broad issues with palm oil plantations being key drivers, for example, of biodiversity laws and habitat laws, particularly in many rainforest ecosystems in Southeast Asia and beyond. Mm. But I would love if you could take us specifically to the frontier of palm oil plantation expansion in West Papua that you looked at. So when did the tensions here begin and what has that historical context leading to the Marin people's ongoing struggles of land defense today looked like? Sure. So I've had the immense privilege to learn from and to think with one particular indigenous community on the Papuan plantation frontier, a peoples who self-identify as the Marind and Neem peoples. These are communities who are primarily dependent on the forest for their daily subsistence through practices of hunting, fishing and gathering. And since 2008, these peoples have seen huge areas of their customary lands and forests targeted for conversion to monocrop oil palm plantations, both by national and international corporations. The sort of context, that sort of timing, 2008, is significant in two respects. Uh, First, it was a time when the Indonesian government was very much trying to promote regional economic development projects in West Papua, but it also coincided with the food, fuel and finance crisis, which led to a whole spate of large-scale land acquisitions or land grabs across the global south, primarily for the purposes of agro-industrial developments. There's a longer 
historical context to these more recent extractive projects. West Papua is a region that has been under settler colonial rule by Indonesia since the 1960s. It's a part of the world where indigenous peoples' rights to sovereignty and self-determination continues to be denied. It's a part of the world where struggles for indigenous survivance and continuance are very much underway. And so the arrival of these monocrops in many ways constitutes the latest manifestation in a much longer standing history of settler colonial occupation now perpetuated in the guise of the large scale privately owned monocrop plantations. And this power dynamic of the economic and political and military corporate forces intruding upon the indigenous livelihoods of the Marin people certainly is not unique. And you share that the oil palm developments in this region are clear examples of what anthropologists would call the dispossessory dynamics of agribusiness expansion, which is a process premised on and perpetuating structural violence in the form of land alienation, growing poverty, intergenerational displacement, and precarious rural livelihoods, end quote. Specifically, what are the sorts of developmental promises often made to the local and indigenous peoples about the oil palm projects? And what are some of the lies you've seen play out as well as, you know, myths of such, quote unquote, civilizing projects for modernity? Mm. That's a really important question you're asking there. Yeah, so I borrowed the term dispossessory dynamics from a fellow anthropologist, Tanya Murray-Lee, who's done extensive research in the palm oil sector across Indonesia to really refer to, as you described, that sort of attritive, displacing, dislocating, disempowering effect of the economic, military, corporate troika on many indigenous peoples and places in Indonesia and, and well beyond across the tropics. Um, so the kind kinds of development promises that tend to accompany these projects in, in Merauke and in West Papua more generally include economic benefits, so salaries, employment stability uh, in the form of labor on the plantations. They include also educational opportunities for workers themselves and for their children in the form of scholarships and access to schools in urban areas. And they also often come tethered with this idea that integrating within a formal cash crop economy will also enhance the social mobility of rural Papuans and their integration within the modern nation state of Indonesia. So as you can probably tell, there are some really strong sort of civilizationist rhetorics and assumptions underlying many of these promises, ones that also accrue heightened significance in West Papua, which is a Melanesian world region and where dynamics of racism and racial discrimination are very much also part of this story of settler colonization. Papuans often tend to be represented as primitive, backwards, forest-dependent peoples who can be uplifted from their backwardness through uh, development projects like oil palm developments. Lies, uh, deceit, and dupery are also very much part of the story, as you've sort of hinted at. Often these promises are made in the early stages of oil palm developments, but they do not end up materializing in practice. There's a lot of opacity surrounding land surrender contracts that communities sign when they give away their lands for developments. Often the legal implications of these contracts across generational lines are unclear or unspecified, or they're simply not explained to communities who might be signing documents, even though they cannot themselves read or write. And one of the biggest issues has been that of consent, right? Often these projects 
are framed by governments and corporate actors as a sort of fait accompli, right? Communities might be consulted in the process, but it is not their consent that is sought. In other words, communities do not have space to say no to the project. It's more about getting them to say yes. And so that makes for a really uneven playing field from the very outset. And it's also in violation of numerous international human rights laws that do recognize the right of indigenous peoples to give or to withhold their free prior or informed consent to any sort of development that will affect their lands, their futures, their cultures, and their livelihoods. So certainly there are the outright broken promises that were made. And at the same time, I guess part of the challenge is that there's this promise of advancement, which has equated to making more and more people dependent on the more reductive cash economy on, you know, working jobs in order to make a living. And I think this is a challenge because for a lot of people who exist within, quote unquote, the modern world, which I don't even, I really question that sort of label and category as well. But for many people who only know and have existed in these systems, it can be hard to even consider what life could be like outside of the cash economy and why, you know, more jobs would not be a good thing. So I guess it's just a difficult subject to unravel without going deeper to look at the deeper questions of how society could even look like beyond what so many people only know right now, living inside of the dominant cash economy system. Yeah, absolutely. I just going back on the point about about modernity in the modern world. I mean, I think, you know, my stance alongside that of other indigenous and critical race scholars has has been that, you know, we all inhabit the same temporality and and time. We just have very different ideas of of what progress and advancement might look like, right? So these ideas of advancement through, uh, you know, economic gain, material benefits and so forth. Those are very much constructs that are being brought in by corporate and government actors and that are very much at odds with the ways in which many indigenous marine peoples themselves understand what a good life is and what a meaningful future might be both for themselves and for the more than human forests that they have always historically traditionally become with through relations of care and nurture and reciprocity and so forth and kinship so it's really important i suppose to sort of problematize how we understand what a meaningful future means and how that can differ depending on one's cultural framework and spiritual framework as well. But one of the biggest impacts of this sort of push towards a dependence on cash economies is that it very much, in many ways, disempowers indigenous marine peoples who have traditionally you know, engaged in subsistence activities and who are very much attuned to the seasonalities and the rhythms of their natural environment and who are now finding themselves themselves very much caught in these kind of monopsonistic relations with corporate and state actors, which take away a lot of their freedoms and autonomies to make their own sorts of decisions about what their economic futures might be or might look like. Yeah, certainly a lot to hold front and center here. And what's critical to note is that it's really not just those with pretty clear ill intentions, prioritizing extraction and profit 
over the well-being of local communities. It's not just these sorts of moneyed interests who have caused structural violence and systemic harm to the Marin people and their land base. It's also sometimes those with good intentions, but who may be imposing certain worldviews of separation, not shared by, in this case, the Marin people, who have a more relational worldview in terms of how they view their forest community. And I'm alluding here, of course, to non-local conservationists who have tried to do good, but may have ended up even aggravating some of the people's struggles for sovereignty and maintaining kinship with the forest. So I wonder if you could speak more to how conservationism has affected the Marin people's lifeways and what this might tell us about the colonization of thought and knowledge beyond purely having good intentions. It's really interesting that you bring up conservation because so many of the people, so many of my companions in, in West Papua talk about conservationism and, and capitalism as, as what they call, you know, two sides of the same coin um, for precisely the reason you've invoked that often both tend to further in many ways the exclusion or, or dispossession of indigenous peoples of the environments that they have always lived with in and from, in this instance, uh, rainforests and, and mangroves and swamps and marshes and so forth. So conservationism in Papua sort of takes two forms. One is government-led conservation initiatives, and others are corporate-led conservation initiatives. So I'm thinking here in particular of corporations that are members of commodity certification standards, like the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, or RSPO, which is a standard that is seeking to raise the bar on corporate, social, and environmental safeguards in the palm oil sector. And that often entails offsetting defense deforestation for oil palm production uh, by setting aside conservation areas within these privatized concessions. But again, the problem here is that so much of these conservation practices are, are still very much anchored in a nature-culture divide, right? The idea that nature as wildness is something to be preserved and safeguarded from human intervention, uh, whereas culture is this realm of human activity and human meaning-making, uh, human profit-making. And that is a very, very alien concept to Marin and to indigenous peoples the world over, right? This idea that nature and culture, the human and the non-human, exist as two separate bounded realms. On the contrary, plants, animals, and humans come into being through their relations, through their interactions across space and across time. They share stories, to borrow Marin's own terms, right? Uh, their existence is enabled through these ongoing interactions over time and across generations. Um, so conservation can certainly uh, constitute a form of violence, even as you say, when it's often driven by good intentions, uh, the forest, wildlife, biodiversity are also increasingly threatened by plantation expansion. And that's where I think an anthropological perspective that explores the ways in which human communities who are most directly and deeply affected by these developments really, really matters uh, because their perspectives on what nature's count and how nature should be preserved and, and sustained and nourished is absolutely central to the story uh, because both human and non-human worlds are joined at the hip and their shared futures are also very much part of a broader community of life. Right. And to take this even further, to this point about good intentions often not going far enough, it's been really important for you to oppose the colonization of knowledge, which you name as the dominant approach still in research, playing out when, for example, knowledge is taken as something produced by and for the global north based on lives lived in the global south, end quote. 
Sometimes when stories and research methodologies have become so normalized, it can be hard to see that there are alternative narratives and alternate ways to understand particular issues or that the dominant approaches may even have caused harm. So I want to ask you why it's been critical for you to center the Marin people's own complex theories of change rather than otherwise using perhaps an outsider lens to analyze and explain and tell their stories. So in other words, why does that specific angle matter and what might we miss out on otherwise? Thanks for that question, Kamea. One of the key indigenous scholars that I've been thinking with about these questions of colonizing knowledge and, and decolonizing the canon is a Maori scholar called Makere Stuart Harawira, who's written some really insightful and, and provocative pieces on what she calls knowledge capitalism. And here she's referring to the ways in which academics and, and the academic institution in many ways perpetuates or replicates the dispossession of indigenous peoples of their ways of knowing and being through the very practice of our research and attendant methodologies. And, you know, I, I come from anthropology. I'm trained as an anthropologist, a discipline that, of course, has historically reproduced or been used to reproduce this sort of extractive logic of taking information from one part of the world to elaborate theories that then only really have traction or act as cultural capital in, in the global north, in and for the global north. So why did it matter to push against that? Well, first of all, I think certain you know, in terms of social science and humanities, sort of climate of the social sciences and humanities is very much one of trying to decanonize and decolonize these sorts of uh, dominant ways of doing and conceptualizing research. And in large part, that call has stemmed from indigenous scholars and critical race scholars themselves who are calling out against that sort of theory versus ethnography uh, divide and hierarchy. It also mattered to center indigenous people's own theories of change and philosophies because those theories and philosophies exist. Um, Marin have their own incredibly complex ways of, of critiquing, of conceptualizing the radical transformations that are happening in their life world, much the same way that there are alternative canons of scholarship in Indigenous studies and critical race studies that are not centered to the limelight yet, but that do exist. And I think the very fact of recognizing that existence in itself is already important, um, because unfortunately, it's not the way that students tend to be trained. It's not the sort of uh, scholarship that students tend to be exposed to within the university system. And it's really important to highlight these other ways of knowing, of, of critiquing and of reflecting on social and environmental transformations. So as you've strived to center the Marin people's own cosmologies and how they conceptualize justice and interpret the struggles that they've been facing, you share, very early on, I was struck by how Upper Bian Marin conceptualized the arrival of oil palm. The stories I heard in the field were not about global markets, corporate interests, or food security, nor did they primarily revolve around the issue of rights, land, human, or indigenous, end quote. So what did you learn from centering the Marin people's own narratives and relationalities and worldviews of what they've been experiencing? And what do you mean when you say it invites a pluralization of justice itself as a situated practice and cultural construct? 
Yeah, so that part of the book is really trying to take the reader through my own intellectual and personal rethinking of what it means to be in the world and what oil palm developments mean for indigenous peoples on the ground. And one of the biggest lessons I learned was that the arrival of oil palm on Marin's lands and territories wasn't simply an environmental issue. It was one that was radically reconfiguring a whole range of different facets of their life world. It was reconfiguring their sense of place. It was transforming their sense of time and temporality. It was also having all kinds of dire impacts on their bodies and their relationships with plants and animals in the forest. The arrival of agribusiness was even transforming the way people dreamed. People were being haunted by these nightmares of being possessed by the oil palm in their sleep, in dreams in which they would mm. witness their own deaths in the plantation or become lost in plantations in the middle of the night. So all the kinds of anxieties and, and disfigurations happening in the waking world were being amplified and continuing even in the world of their sleep. So this really brought to light to me the fact that the destruction of the environment, the arrival of oil palm, was not nothing less than an existential crisis, one that was leaving no single sphere or species of life untouched, and that was affecting Marin themselves as much as their plant and animal kin in the forest, kin whom they consider to be sentient, agentive, and meaningful agents and world makers and persons. Why does that invite a pluralization of justice? Uh, well, for me, what I was trying to convey there was that Marin experiences and discourses about the transformations happening in their worlds points to the fact that they don't think about justice purely in human, anthropocentric or individual terms, as is the case in a lot of dominant Western legal paradigms. Instead, they think about plants, animals and landscapes, too, as rightful subjects of justice, beings that merit dignity, that have rights, that deserve nurture and care. And that's a really pluralistic, non-anthropocentric way of thinking about justice, which makes space for a whole range of more than human beings with whom we unevenly share the world and who also merit respect and who are also part of relations of reciprocity and reverence within Indigenous life worlds. And so I guess in terms of the key takeaways here, I wonder how the fields of conservation and environmentalism and movements for justice, especially from the global north, can learn from a more expansive view of justice and these invitations to shifting how we even relate to the more than human world. I'm curious to think about what deeper differences we might be able to make by Again, going beyond just the intentions of wanting to create a healthier and more just world. That's a great question. It's an indomitably complicated question, I think, not least because <laughs> as an anthropologist, I've always tried to think about practices and, and notions like justice as situated, right? And by situated, well, I'm borrowing a term from the feminist theorist Donna Haraway, a term that, that Donna uses to refer to the fact that all concepts and practices are grounded in particular places and particular times and particular contexts, right? So it's really hard and perhaps one should not try to generalize or, or render abstract ideas like justice, even as we're trying to pursue uh, global struggles to overcome entrenched and emergent forms of injustice. Uh, we need to sort of stay with the trouble of the granularity and the specificity of local life worlds. But what I think we can learn from indigenous ways of thinking about what one might call multi-species justice, again, is that the subject of justice need not be an individual. And again, you know, even the idea of the human as an individual is belied by the fact that we are already always already composed 
composed of millions of other organisms in our gut, on our skin, evolutionarily speaking, right? So there's a kind of a fiction of the individual at play here. We need to push against that. We need to think through relations. We need to also think about the plants and the animals that we share the world with, including beings that we might not like, that we might not cherish, but that still constitute subjects of justice um, who have their own worlds and whose worlds count. And a big part of that, I think, comes with the need to acknowledge vulnerability and violence as multi-species processes. And by that, I specifically mean um, trying to move beyond notions of human exceptionalism or, or the superiority of the human species over other categories of being, and instead think through our shared vulnerabilities, shared vulnerabilities that are, of course, being heightened in the context of this planetary unmaking, and that is the Anthropocene and attendant forms of climate change and so forth, right? Vulnerabilities are increasingly shared across species lines. And in the process, there's really an invitation here to rethink the kinds of violence that we have naturalized when it comes to so-called natural resources, right? To stop thinking in terms of property and ownership, to stop thinking about plants and animals as, as resources, and instead to think about them as persons, as potential kin, as subjects and agents, as world makers and world unmakers. And that's a really big paradigmatic and conceptual shift for those of us who do live in worlds governed by a nature-culture divide. It requires us to radically rethink who we are and how we sit within a far broader spectrum of life. And I think that's the challenge. And that is the invitation of the Anthropocene. Pretty profound to consider the sorts of changes that we could manifest in the world, beginning with digging deeper to questioning the sort of worldviews that we hold about our place in the world and how we relate to the land and water and other more than human beings that share the earth with us. And some of the threads from this conversation reminds me of my interview with Dr. Bio Akomolafe, in which he named the violence of inclusion and what might get lost in the process of being included within something. Mm -hmm. You similarly have shared, rather than incorporating indigenous knowledges and practices into existing institutional architectures, I think that we should be seeking to restructure these architectures in the first place. An additive approach will not do, end quote. Mm -hmm. Again, with good intentions, people often conceptualize justice or the path to a more just world as involving just more people having a seat at the table. But I think this challenges whether the agenda's rule book and power dynamic and relationalities already established at the table ought to also be dismantled and questioned. So to ground what might otherwise feel a little abstract, I'd be interested in hearing your thought process on going beyond the politics of inclusion to restructuring the architectures altogether. So what feels most top of mind for you to share right now on this topic as we keep dreaming about our possibilities and our paths towards collective healing? Thanks for that. Uh, your, your invocation there of, of this idea of the violence of inclusion makes me think of the work of Mark Rifkin, who I understand you has also featured on this podcast series and who makes mm -hmm. very similar <laughs> arguments um, in relation to time, right? This idea that, that the incorporation of indigenous peoples within a modern Western notion of time and temporality also constitutes a form of, of violence through inclusion, even as, as it's trying to push against the framing of indigenous peoples as pre-modern or, or Stone Age communities and such. So there's a really interesting resonance there between the work of Akumufale and, and Mark Rifkin, I think. And yes, I think, yeah, this idea of 
expanding justice alone as something that you know is is insufficient is absolutely core to a lot of the conversations that I have with indigenous communities in the field and also with indigenous scholars who very much call instead for a transformative approach to justice that really brings into question some of the most fundamental assumptions and premises and paradigms that undergird this this very notion of justice and here I'm thinking in particular of the work of uh, the Native American scholars Eve Tuck and Leanne Bittes Samosake Simpson, who have had some very strong words to say about justice, very strong critiques of, of this very idea of justice as already inherently colonial in itself, relying on this construct of the nation state and perpetually deferred. So thinking with uh, scholars like Eve, like Leanne, who, who invite us to, to decolonize justice itself from its colonial undergirdings has been really, really fruitful. What can we do to work towards that sort of transformational uh, praxis or, or philosophizing of justice? Well, I, first of all, I think we need to bring indigenous voices to the table, not just in an additive sense, but but in a centralizing sense. And by that, I mean making indigenous ways of being and knowing and thinking the core of, of our approaches, including the methodologies that we use in, in researching and understanding questions of justice and injustice, methodologies that might include oral storytelling, that might include walking the forest forest, that might include engaging in particular kinds of rituals, that might include singing, and that might include uh, listening to rivers and learning to talk to mountains, right? And really transforming the very way we understand understanding and learning. And the second thing I'd say in working towards this transformation is to start stop thinking through entities or things or categories and then start start thinking through relations or relationalities. And by that, I mean the ways in which all things or categories are always already coming into being through their relationship to other things and other beings, whether they be human, other than human, past, present, or emergent. And that sort of relational thinking, that relational ethos is, you know, at the heart of many indigenous epistemologies, right? And again, I think it would help us push against the sort of human exceptionalism and the anthropocentrism that continues to constitute a fundamental premise or assumption of much of the dominant Western canon or or way of thinking about human and more than human worlds. So, of course, as we're thinking about the expansion of palm oil plantations, all of this is in large part driven by the increase in the global market and demand for palm oil for various consumer goods and food products, even though, of course, a lot of this is being driven by a lot of the big food corporations attempting to look for cheaper mass-produced ingredients in order to create the products that they want to put out there. And the pressures that the local communities in these particular regions faced, though, are very much tethered to that global pressure. So how can our listeners, wherever they are, understand their place and role and relationship with this very local and indigenous struggle? And where beyond sitting with the deeper worldview shifts that we might need to make, where could alleviating this pressure come from? Yes, you're absolutely right. These local dynamics and processes that I describe in the book are very much embedded within a broader global political economy, um, one that is driven by a growing demand for palm oil, not just as a source of food, but also as a source of renewable fuel. And so, you know, palm oil is in many ways really good to think with in terms of examining the ways that we all as consumers are connected in more or less 
conscious ways with seemingly out-of-the-way places and seemingly out-of-the-way ecologies and environments? Well, first of all, because of the fact that palm oil is such a ubiquitous commodity in our everyday life. It's in many of our foods. It's in our cosmetics. It's in our toiletries. Um, it's really ubiquitous and it shapeshifts across a whole range of different commodities that are part of our everyday life. And in some ways, it can be really hard for those of us who are trying to practice more sustainable consumerism to kind of exclude palm oil from our everyday consumer lives because it's rarely labeled as palm oil on many of the products that we purchase. Often palm oil simply goes, is labeled as vegetable oil or it goes under some 250 different compound names. Um, so you might, you might think you're doing the right thing, but then if you dig a little bit deeper into the ingredient lists, there's a high chance that palm oil is going to be there in one form or another. So I think consumers actually have very limited capacity to, to do the right thing and make the right choice. And that's where I think that legal institutional regulatory systems need to be in place so that there's a better way of identifying what the products we consume contain. But there are, you know, there are a range of different uh, initiatives that are happening now to try to raise the bar on the palm oil sector's social and environmental impacts. One of them is the sustainable, the roundtable sustainable palm oil that I mentioned earlier, or the RSPO that, you know, uh, puts companies through a whole range of different audits uh, to ensure that they're complying with the standards, principles and criteria. Other people would argue that one should boycott the palm oil sector entirely. I'm torn on this one. There are millions of impoverished smallholders across the tropics who are now very much dependent on the palm oil sector to make a living. Boycotting the sector is going to have the most dire impact on those communities on the ground. So whether boycotting is a solution or not is something that I, I you know, I don't have an answer to. What I think does need to happen is, is a rethinking of the way in which these developments are happening on the ground, including processes of consent. But I think that, you know, palm oil is a really great invitation for all of us to think about the ways in which matter and commodities connect us to forms of violence and dispossession and injustice in other parts of the world, right? Um, we are all unwittingly complicit in many of these forms of, of extraction and dispossession. Uh, and there are things we can do to push against that. We can get involved in environmental justice movements. We can try to make the right decisions or responsible decisions when we purchase commodities, and that might be labeled as sustainable or not. We might also inform ourselves about the ways in which Indigenous peoples are experiencing these transformations, right? To not just understand palm oil through its biodiversity impacts, but also through its human and social impacts. So awareness raising, making responsible choices as a consumer and thinking about the way we're connected to these places through our everyday life, I think are good starting points, I suppose, in addressing this wicked problem that is the palm oil sector. Mm, well, I really appreciate you naming that you are torn on this and feel conflicted about it because it is complex and it's important to recognize that oftentimes certain solutions posed as the silver bullet might cause detrimental impacts, at least in the short term, to some groups of people. And that is always important to consider. And change is never going to be easy. So it's important to sit with these difficult questions. Mm -hmm. And lastly, as we're coming to a close for our main conversation, what are some of the most meaningful lessons you've personally learned from engaging with the Marin people through deep listening and spending time with them? And what are some of your calls to deeper inquiry or action for our listeners? 
Sure. So I suppose the biggest lesson that Marin taught me through a long and arduous apprenticeship during my field work was to really uh, start to engage my body as a tool or a medium for apprehending and appreciating everything else that is always already going on beyond the human world. This was something that I was not attuned to when I first visited the field. It was something that Marin and skilled me in, this art of passionate immersion, to borrow Anastasia term or this art of attentiveness through listening, through observing, through tasting, through really bringing the body into the story and asking questions of the world over and over again through one's senses. And I think that's a lesson that has very much stayed with me well beyond the realm of scholarly practice in my own everyday life, simply that of slowing down and paying attention to what's going on and moving beyond body-mind hierarchies and divides and rethinking the body itself as probably one of the best ways in which we can come to resituate and reposition ourselves within more than human worlds and matters. I think Marin also taught me to be much more critical about my positionality, to be reflexive about the ways in which I myself am positioned within these structural systems of, of, of violence, of extraction, including as an academic, including as an anthropologist. I think it's good to lose sleep over questions of positionality. I think it's good to constantly question where you are, how you are, and questions of cultural difference as well, as part of a fostering of you know, an ethos of respect and humility as well. And, you know, in terms of key takeaways, I would encourage readers, or rather as a call to action, alongside using your body as a way of, of, of engaging with the world, I would invite you to be curious about the more than human world, which is so often sort of a backdrop to what we consider to be the more interesting activities of the human species. Um, there's a lot going on there. If we slow down, if we notice, if we pay attention, if we sort of pause in our productivist everyday life, uh, we'll start to become aware of, of other lives, of other meanings, of other interactions, of other meaning-making practices that are also part of this uh, multi-species environment that we inhabit. And my other call to action would be to read outside the canon, read scholarship by Indigenous academics, read scholarship from critical race studies, read scholarship from queer scholars, uh, because when we start to read beyond the canon, well, first of all, we discover that there are many other canons, and also we start to work towards a kind of coalitional thinking, one that sort of cross-pollinates different ways of knowing towards a practice of reckoning, of recognition, and of repair that works across space and time. So I'd invite the listeners to expand your horizons by engaging with these diverse bodies of scholarship, all of which are really, really important in decolonizing the way we are, the way we think, in conversation and in respectful dialogue with others. What has been an impactful book that you've read or a publication that you follow that you want to share? 
One of the most impactful publications that I've read this last year is a book by one of my close friends and mentors and conspirers, um, Christine Winter, who is a Maori political theorist from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Her book is called Subjects of Intergenerational Justice, Indigenous Philosophy, the Environment and Relationships. It came out last year with Routledge, and it's an absolutely beautiful work that challenges mainstream Western environmental justice theories by bringing into the mix Indigenous philosophies and their potential to solve global environmental problems. The reason why this book has been so impactful for me is because of its generosity. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's a book that doesn't just critique and challenge Western ways of knowing. It's a book that that makes a really compelling argument that all members of societies, settler and non-settler, can in fact benefit from embracing aspects of indigenous philosophies and values. And in doing so, we might actually help to enrich an impoverished way of seeing the world through these fictive divides between human and non-human and the individual from its constitutive relations. So it's a book that offers us an incredibly expansive way of thinking with more than human worlds. It's the book that offers a rich way of situating oneself in relation to others, human and non-human. And it's a wonderful book in terms of the way it humbles and honors processes of living and dying across generations and species. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? So here I'm going to invoke a mantra that the Marind themselves frequently shared with me during my time in the field, which was that of uh, stop writing, start walking, stop talking, start listening. This was an injunction I received over and over again. It's one that took me a long time to actually put into practice. And what is it inviting us to do? Well, it's inviting us to move away from the laptop, move away from the pen and notebook and start again using one's body, walking to the encounter of plants and animals and landscapes. Uh, It's also inviting us to stop talking and instead open our ears to the sounds and stories and voices of the more than human human world. And I've always loved that mantra. um, And it's one I try to enact in my everyday life as challenging as that can be in the productionist, progressivist world that we inhabit in much of the global north. But I think it's a wonderful invitation to just slow down and pause and just once again pay attention and to start to activate our senses in attuning and immersing in this incredibly rich and diverse world that we've been gifted. Mm. And what are some of your biggest sources of inspiration right now? So for me, the Marin peoples of West Papua, uh, whom I've had the privilege to think with and learn from in the last decade, I would say continue to be my biggest source of inspiration, the ways, the complex philosophies and practices and protocols that they entrusted me with continue to shape the way I think and the way I engage with the world. They have been absolutely transformative for me, both as a scholar and as a human fleshly being inhabiting this wounded world. Another big source of inspiration has been so many of my colleagues and companions and co-thinkers in the space of Indigenous studies, including Christine Winter, whose book I just mentioned, but also uh, scholars like Robin Wall Kimmerer, Hiile Hobart, Craig Santos Perez, all of whom are scholars working in an interdisciplinary vein and also drawing from their own situated life stories to offer us incredibly rich 
complex, creative, critical and capacious ways of, of being in the world and, and rethinking our relations to plants, animals, oceans and elements even. And so I have a huge debt and I want to acknowledge and recognize the gifts that these scholars thinking have brought to my intellectual and personal life. And thirdly, I'd say one of my biggest sources of, of inspiration is happening right now outside of my window in the form of dozens of bustling lorikeets who have been singing and storying for the last hour that we've been in conversation. The lorikeets, the Australian bush, it's possums, it's, it's, it's kangaroos, it's cassowaries, it's incredibly diverse and unique wildlife continue to be a source of inspiration uh, when I myself go and stop thinking and start walking in the company of these incredibly diverse and wonderful ecosystems. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close, but to learn more and stay updated on Sophie's work, you can head to www.morethanhumanworlds.com. And again, Sophie's book that we talked about today is titled In the Shadow of the Palms, available through Duke University Press. Sophie, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's been an honor to be in conversation with you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? My final word of wisdom, um, so to speak, I suppose would be don't give in to the paralyzing politics of despair. It can be really hard to lose hope given contemporary conditions. Um, it can be really easy to sink into a sense of hopelessness and futility where uh, you know nothing can be done to overcome some of these unsur seemingly unsurmountable environmental, social and racial uh, struggles and injustices that do plague much of the world we inhabit. Don't sink into that. Find allies, find companions in your struggles, and look for beauty in the world. In this world, um, it is a beautiful world. It's a world worth protecting, and we can do so best in conversation and allyship with others. And others are there, so don't give up hope. Um, look for the beauty. Keep walking. Keep attuning. Use your bodies, and recall that this world is a gift, and we can protect it and cherish it, and make for better shared futures together. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and critical conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support or at patreon.com greendreamer. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Calliopeia Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Come the Rain by Maggie Clifford. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>